We will never know. We will never know how much some of these people are worth because the government has concluded on more than one occasion that it's none of our or their business based on current tax laws. They unabashedly beg for money and guilt people who are already not getting by to plunge themselves deeper into debt so that they can take private planes to the same ski lodge 143 fucking times. I can't even begin to imagine why the government funded this whole probe because they had to know how it was going to end. The instant you insert religion into the equation with any of this, it eradicates so much responsibility that how on earth do you hold these people responsible when the laws of the land don't? And that's the truly scary part about this. The sheer amounts of money that are involved and the fact that we will probably never know what those real numbers are. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get Unbound. I have to wonder precisely how much money is there in Texas. Mm. Jesus fucking Christ, these televangelist bank accounts are bottomless pits. And some of the key players are in Texas. A few of them yeah. are in Texas and throughout the South, too. I mean, Georgia, Florida. Yeah. But, man, there's there's a lot to be said for just the amount of money yeah. that televangelists manage to grift off of people every year. It just mm-hmm. it seems like it's so much. And where in the world does it come from? Where do televangelists get their money? And what do they do with it when they get it? Well, we're going to be looking at these questions tonight and more. Oh, dear Lord, there's more. (laughs) I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And yeah, it amazes me how much money there seems to be to go around to these guys. And even though donations come in from all around the world, their churches are situated in ways that make me wonder how they manage to fill their arenas every Sunday. I mean, that's a lot of people. And not all of them have the kind of disposable income it would take to keep one of these guys in mansions and planes, let alone the actual numbers of these shysters who have all of that. Yeah. Well, there actually is an answer to that question, which we will get to later. But first, Shell is here to rock you like a hurricane rebuked by Cat <laughs> Kerr. And that's, uh, that's a pretty powerful fucking hurricane. Yeah. And I'll give myself and anyone else who wants it a trigger warning for both false prophecy fuckery and more COVID bullshit tonight. Mm. You may find it entertaining. Me, I'm just looking for a wall to bang my head against just thinking about what we're about to talk about here. (laughs) For good or for bad, Shell, what have you got for us tonight? Well, guess who's back in CBB News today? You you mentioned her. It's our. I already spoiled it. I know. It's our favorite charlatan prophetess, Cat Care. Maybe she's your favorite. I, I say I that every single time. I find her kind of amusing, but at the same time, I find her terrifying. Yeah, so that's, I'm, that's I a just, good way to describe her. Yeah. As it turns out, she doesn't just make up shit about heaven to entertain and amuse. She also likes to take authority over hurricanes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, she's got her example, doesn't she? Oh, yeah. Jesus calming the storm. Mm-hmm. Didn't he say we would do even greater things than these? That was yeah. just a little storm. 
Right. Is there any reason why someone like Kat Kerr wouldn't be able to calm a hurricane? Oh, that's right. The Bible is a work of fiction. It's not that's real. yeah, that's the problem. Okay. <laughs> well, you can imagine her track record, but you don't have to because the friendly atheist has done the work for you. In 2018, she said Hurricane Lane, a Category 4 storm that thankfully weakened before it hit Hawaii, wasn't harmful because her prayers shredded the storm. Shredded the storm. Very metal. That's so metal. (laughs) That year, she also said she took authority over Hurricane Florence, which ended up being extremely destructive. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I'm not laughing at the destruction. I'm laughing at the absurdity of her claim. Yes. And just the pure arrogance. I don't want to offend anyone by laughing at that because, I mean, people lost property. They lost loved ones. They lost a lot. It's just the sheer idiocy of that kind of a claim, knowing full well. She had to know full well that there was no way she was going to be able to have any kind of, quote unquote, authority over this thing or any of the other ones that she's claimed authority over. Right. In 2019, she said she crushed Hurricane Dorian with her prayers, even though the storm killed over 80 people and caused billions of dollars worth of damage. Oh, she crushed it, all right. Yeah. And last year, she promised there would be no destruction in any way from Hurricanes Laura and Marco, even though Laura caused dozens of deaths and nearly 20 billion in damages. Well, in televangelist terms, that's not a lot. (laughs) Kat here doesn't have a good track record on predicting the weather is my well, neither does your average meteorologist, no. but that doesn't stop them. No, but they have science on their side. Kat Kerr just has her own very, very vivid imagination. Well, yeah, she has a very vivid imagination, yes. that's for sure. And with Hurricane Ida, she said that she and her weather warriors were going to take care of this and claimed that there would be no tolerating any destruction or death. You and tell those people to unfucking die right now. We commend. I wonder if she would have tried. Yeah. Well, here's her prayer. We command the storm to be downgraded in Jesus' name because we have authority over it. We are over the weather, not under the weather. And we tell Ida, you will not become anything. You may bring refreshing rain, but no severe flooding, no storm damage, no tornadoes, no death or dying. You will not keep going and bring death and destruction. You can only go to the dry areas and bring rain that will nourish the earth. So in Jesus' name, we have dealt with Ida. Well, when she said this, it was a Category 1 storm. It finished as a Category 4 storm, caused power outages for half a million people, and at least one death. Yeah, you know what? Maybe she should just, I don't know. Leave the weather well enough alone? Leave the weather alone. Don't. Keep making these predictions. You're only making them worse. You know, maybe maybe there is a god behind this. Maybe his name is Loki. (laughs) I'll show you something, bitch. (laughs) And this just strikes me as the sort of thing he would do. It's like, I don't like the god that you're praying to about this. Fuck you, I'm going to make it worse. Yeah, right. You know, that that sounds just like the type of thing that he would do. But we're going to get away from the theistic end of this because we don't like, we don't like giving any god the spotlight on this show no but we do actually have another story for you yes, and we again do. um covid stupidity warning people brace yourselves it's nothing that you haven't heard before right because just, these idiots do this all the time it's just they keep changing the words around yeah 
And it's more rage-inducing as time goes by, especially when I think about the people that I know mm -hmm. who are currently dealing with this, right. who have had it, and who are caring for people who have it. And some are starting to grow more callous toward the people who have it because the people who have it are also largely anti-vaxxers yeah. and deniers and anti-maskers. So... Yeah, this particular thing is even more rage-inducing for me because of the way that it downplays the help that this guy got. Right. So let's talk about this a little yeah. bit. Okay, well, Christian evangelist Mario Murillo has spent the last two years or so downplaying the effects of COVID. So as you can guess, the hammer of narrative causality slapped him with a case of COVID last month. He even had to go to the hospital. But apparently... Once he went to the hospital, the COVID just went away. Amazing. Amazing. You're in an environment where you're getting help and treatment and it goes away. Who'd have thunk it? Well, he attributes it all to his prayers. Of course he does. They not the do. doctors, not the medicine, just prayers. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. Mm. Um, was that the doctor's first name? And that's oh, the only wish. way that works. Yeah, right. And here is what he says about it. I was a sign and wonder myself. Oh, God. God, how, how fucking arrogant. I had how to go. How fucking arrogant. <laughs> yeah, I know. I had to go to the hospital. And it was finally there that a raging fever and nausea and flaming agony like I've never known. They said, you have COVID. But here's what I did. Once in my hospital room, I started confessing the word of God over and over and over and over again. And I said, devil, you're a liar. And the doctors couldn't explain it. Thursday, I was in the hospital. Friday, I'm in the hospital. All symptoms left. Saturday morning, I'm released. Can I just interject something about this? Because I have recent experience yeah. with someone who got this. Okay. Mm -hmm. So a couple of weeks ago, my bestie texts me from Louisiana. I'm in Massachusetts. She's in Louisiana. It's been this way for years and it sucks. But... She texted me and told me just three words and, you know, it sent chills up my spine. She just said, I have COVID. Mm. Now, she's still relatively young. She's considerably younger than me. So her body is in a better place to deal with this than it would be for someone my age. So I was concerned, but not terribly scared. She was more scared, but I knew that she would recover. And she didn't have the luxury of staying in the hospital. She went to the ER. They swabbed her. It came back positive. They told her, here's what you do next. They sent her home with meds, told her to basically treat it like it's the flu and to contact them if she was having trouble breathing or anything else was going wrong. Yeah. But she should expect to start getting better over the course of the next couple of days. Well, fast forward three or four days and she's feeling herself again because we know how to deal with this so much better now yeah. that sometimes it doesn't take two or three weeks to get over it. For some people, they get over it more quickly. They're still, they still have to quarantine because they're still contagious. But the effects of COVID are suppressed to the point where you start feeling normal again pretty quickly with a lot fewer side effects. So when this guy gives a timeline of three days, it's like, that doesn't make you special, dude. And it has nothing to do with your God because mm -hmm. my bestie who doesn't believe in any God that I don't believe in came home, took her meds and immediately started getting better too. So 
that's not your God, dude. That's the fact that so many people have gone through this that we know way better how to deal with it now, mm. especially in cases that are mild where you yeah. can actually recover at home and right. you don't need to be in the hospital and you don't need to be on a ventilator or anything like that. You can recover from this just like you would recover from the flu. So in cases like that, like what she had, yeah, three days to feel better is about right. You're yeah. not... You're not cured of it yet. It's not out of you yet, but you're going to feel mostly normal. Yeah. Well, he went on to say that it was God speaking to him, saying, If the army of God will wake up and refuse to accept the curses of the enemy, they will see a great revival. What happened to me physically in my healing is a miracle sign of what we're going to see in the state of New York during an upcoming revival event. So all of that was just to plug his yeah. his uh, his fucking crusade. Yeah. yeah. He's advertising us. Yep. So I'm confused. If only prayers cured your illness, why did you need to stay for three days after which you said the symptoms are gone? Did they give you nothing for it? No care, no medicine, no therapy of any sort? He's lucky he was allowed to stay in the hospital and be attended to for those three days. Really? My bestie didn't get that. Yeah. Or maybe that's just the story he wants his congregation to know. After all, healing rakes in the dough. It's true. And like we talked about last week, we as evangelicals are conditioned to think of healing as something that is instantaneous. Right. So the whole three days thing, you, you want to know what I think the whole business of the three days thing was. I think it's just because it's a familiar concept right. to the evangelical mind. Right. And it really doesn't mean much beyond that. But let's think of a notorious political figure that came down with this last year, too. Right. And the fact that he was only in the hospital for like three days and then went yeah. back to work because he got treatments that at the time were experimental. And I don't know what they did for him, but I can speculate that at least some of what they did for him, they did for my bestie and they did for this guy. Yeah. So that's why these people got over it faster. They didn't have a life-threatening case of it. They would have been a year ago told to go home and tough right. it out for a couple of weeks. Now they have meds that allow you to tough it out for a couple of days. Right. That's the reality. That is what happened. It had nothing to do with your God or anything else. It was just a good story to drum up interest in your crusade. Yeah. Well, good for you. You got the attention that you wanted. Now, you know, I don't I don't even know what else to say about this because yeah, it's it's just such a brazen pull at people's heartstrings to yeah. get them to come out to this event because now they're going to want to know more and I'm sure that he's going to tell the whole sordid tale of him getting this and God taking it away and all of that and it's going to fill a lot of offering plates, isn't it? Yep, that's what they want. That is what they want. It's odd segueing from a statement like that into our weekly appeal for new patrons but that's what i'm doing anyway because that's what it's time for and we're getting ready to get into our main topic and before we do i just want to let you know that our patreon is in fact active at patreon.com slash unbound podcast network five bucks a month is the base rate for donations and that comes out to just over a buck an episode it's a good investment especially when you consider the sheer number of people who are out there who are still prone to listen to messaging like this and take it seriously. And they need that point counterpoint. There are a lot of people out there who send a lot of money to televangelists and they need to understand 
what good it's doing them versus what it's doing for the people that they're sending the money to. It's not going into any kind of humanitarian cause. And people need to understand that. But you know what? I don't have Kenneth Copeland's charisma. I can't get a billion people to send me $300 (laughs) each. I can just make this little appeal and say, you know what? We're the ones providing the point counterpoint here. It's important. Help us keep doing it. And if you can't help with your dollars, then help with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, your reviews, all of the things that help podcasts grow. And once again, tell someone new about us this week. It will help tremendously, not just us, but them, because you'll be putting them in front of something that's going to help them get and stay unbound. And that is the single most important part of this. We run this show without ads. We do what we do because we want the messaging to get out there and we want to get it out there in an uninterrupted way so that it has the impact that it needs to have on the person listening. So if you know of anyone who can benefit from what we do with this show, then tell them about us this week and let them have the same experience and opportunity that you've had to start thinking differently about some of the shit that's been shoved in their heads there for some of them for their entire lives. I'm going to leave it there and we're going to jump right into our main topic for this episode. So before we get into the meat of this topic, I want to revisit a concept that I've brought up repeatedly in the past. The idea that it's not the individuals who are to blame for most evangelical fuckery, but the system that created them. That's true for the average pew sitter. And I dare say it's true for the average pastor who devotes his life to serving others in this way. But let's be clear about one thing. Televangelists are not pastors and they're not the average pew sitter. They are marketers who have done a stellar job of finding their niche and they have the magnetism it takes to fleece people for literally billions of dollars with no central product to sell no guarantee that anything they say is going to have any personal benefit for the believer, and they weaponize faith in a way that if this fictional God they reference was a real thing, they'd probably have lots of splaining to do when they arrive at the pearly gates. Televangelism and evangelical Christianity are not the same thing. It's just that one has figured out a way to harness the power of the other and ride it all the way to the bank. Televangelism is big business, and it hides under the cover of religion so that charlatans that practice it can make money hand over fist and never be effectively questioned about how they make it or what they're doing with it. So how big is the televangelism industry? The simple answer to that is that no one really knows. In our episode on Christian charities, we brought up the fact that U.S. tax laws make it easy for religious organizations to hide their tracks because they don't have to account for the money that comes in like a secular charity would. For all intents and purposes, televangelists are protected by their religious affiliations, and as long as they can keep up the appearance of being the head of some kind of church or religious body, they never have to account for a single penny they receive, and many don't even pay income taxes because... Technically, they aren't on any payroll. Right. So when you consider how easy it is to shelter all that cash, it's no wonder that the vast majority of televangelists operate in the United States. I mean, the numbers outside the U.S. are so tiny, they aren't even worth factoring in. But guess what? The ones who operate in other countries target viewers in the U.S., and many barely even have to purchase airtime in this age of live streaming, PayPal, Cash App, and Patreon 
all of which deal internationally with collecting and dispersing funds. Many, however, are okay with the overhead involved in things like buying airtime on a lot of stations, spending millions on huge buildings, and having a massive staff of largely minimum wagers to deal with everything from returning texts and emails to snail mailing prayer cloths all over the place. Now, around 1987, it sure did look like the jig was up. A number of sex and financial scandals bored their way into the televangelism industry in America, and it shined the spotlight on a few of the more vile offenders out there. Mm. First, there was Jim Baker and Jessica Hahn, and that whole debacle. Right. And, I mean, Jim, he learns his lessons the hard way. Yeah. He really does, because there was more with him later on. But in this little two-year period, it was about him and Jessica Hahn. Then there was Jimmy Swagger and his love for prostitutes. And yes, that's plural, because after that whole I have sinned against you bullshit, he was caught again about three years later. Then there was Benny Hinn, who went through his own financial probe in the 80s. A lot of news outlets were looking at him and had him in their crosshairs. And unfortunately, that made him good at dealing with it. So we're going to get to that a little bit later, too. Larry Lee was one I could see his face in my head and I just could not remember his name. I, it took me a while to track him down again. Right. But he was the subject of a financial probe by Primetime Live right. back in the day. I had pretty much forgotten about that, that show. show. Yeah. But I watched it, pardon the term, religiously back in the day. And even in the midst of all of this, even as an evangelical in Bible college at the time, I was very interested in this because like I said at the beginning, these people are not representative of evangelical religion. They just know how to talk to evangelicals. That's a huge difference because very, very little of what these people have to say has anything to do with what's in the Bible. It's just a lot of ear tickling and that's it. But my personal favorite, or, and by that I mean the one that pissed me off the most back in the day, was Oral Roberts and his whole God will kill me if you don't send me money platform. This was back in 87 as well, I believe. And he got on TV and told people that he needed to raise $8 million by the end of March or God will, quote, call me home. So all of these things, and, and there were more. There were There were more preachers and televangelists back in the day that found themselves in the crosshairs over this and it really did look like they were going to go down it looked like it was the end of it but not quite and not by a long shot and all of this came to light in shy of two years less than two years and yet no charges were ever brought against most of them because of the imbecilic way our laws are written to shelter church organizations from minor irritations like you know paying taxes Jim Baker was a little more brazen than most. In 1989, he was sentenced to 45 years in prison under federal charges that the funding for his Heritage USA theme park and resort had been acquired by defrauding their viewers and donors. But we talk about Jim Baker every other week on this show. Right. That's because the sentence was later reduced to eight years and he was released in 1994. What did he learn from his actions having to go to prison for what, however many years it was? It looks like just, it looks like about five years that he actually spent in prison. What did he learn? He learned zip. Yeah. And it's obvious. Yeah. The next question, I guess, would be why they establish churches and don't just take to YouTube and spare themselves the overhead. Well, 
there are a few reasons for this. For starters, when you have a church, it lends a lot of credibility. And it also establishes that there is a functional ministry that is going on there. People come in and out every week. They have not just services, but programs galore, um, just like any evangelical, mostly Pentecostal church is going to have. Well, I shouldn't say mostly Pentecostal, evangelical, because I know that um, I knew of a bunch of Baptist churches yeah. that also had a lot of things going on to make sure that you just stayed in church like perpetually too. So I won't pick on the Pentecostals that bad. So you see this and you see significant numbers of people coming and going. The, these churches have a lot of adherence. So this guy must be doing something right. And honestly, what performer, and that's what these people are, right. they're performers. What performer doesn't like the idea of having his or her own stage. Mm. These guys would not be satisfied sitting at their dining room table with microphones. <laughs> no, they need to be seen. They need to uh, be well-groomed, well-dressed. They need to be well-lit. And they need to be able to show people that they have this pompous authority. And having a real premises for that is it's major, especially when, and I can, I can attest to this because I've been the entertainer myself too. I've been the worship leader. I've been the entertainer playing the open mics. I can tell you that it feels good to have people in the same space as you who admire you, who are cheering you on, who are applauding for what you do, who are raising your own energy and stroking your ego. Right. There's power behind that. And these people eat it up. But not only do they eat it up, they know how to project it right back to their audience and get these people to do what they want them to do. And they're very, very good. They're really, really good at their craft. There is no doubt about that. It's a backhanded compliment at best, mm -hmm. but they really are. Now, in real money terms, televangelism is a bottomless pit. And it's one of the most magnificent grifts there is because at the end of the day, they have merch. They all have merch. Yeah. But the merch is secondary. They're selling a concept literally with no product. Right. Sales of merch are contingent on the buyer already being on board with the concept or concepts that the televangelists are selling. And what are those concepts? Well, we're talking about things like eternal salvation. We're talking about name it and claim it ideology. Um, that's... Uh, prosperity gospel. Right. We're talking about faith giving, getting people used to getting in their wallets as soon as they walk into church. Self-help and more secular themes are starting to become a popular part of this too, where it's not just name it and claim it. It's not just you can have that Ferrari. It's that you can be well in your body and you can do this and that and blah, blah, blah. When you look at all of these bullet points, they point to the same thing. They're all members of this beloved word, faith, a.k.a. prosperity gospel movement. And like everyone in this Christian mafia, because that's what it is, yeah. the key players in our discussion this time are the only ones prospering. Yeah. And that's the way it works. And this whole thing, you know, I'm thinking about televangelists and the way that they present their messaging. It kind of reminds me of MLM. You walk into this big arena mm -hmm. and then you are given things that they want to train your brain over. They want to train you to think in a certain way. 
we're going to convince you, we're going to convince you that we have the most direct roadmap to the things that you want in your life, the possessions that you want, the things you want to be able to do, your health, your happiness, your marriage. We have the roadmap to success with all of this. And then we're going to get you to open your wallets. We're going to get you to buy these books and CDs and DVDs. And when you start using these support materials, they're going to help you get closer to your goals. And yes, many televangelists still use antiquated media like that because a physical product, they know this very well, a physical product will always have a value added advantage. So if they have something that they can place in your hand, as opposed to trusting you to click through to a digital file, they're going to do it. They're going to spend the extra buck or two that it takes to make that CD and send it to you because you are going to be more prone to listen to it and get indoctrinated further. And I hate to say it, but most evangelicals out there are at least 10 years behind the times when it comes to things like technology. So a lot of them still have CD players and DVD players and all of these things that a lot of us have kind of moved on from. I still have DVDs, but there's a lot of antiquated tech out there that still makes the rounds out of these ministries just so that they can have something tangible to put in your hand because you're more prone to use it if they do it that way. And I don't know about you, but I personally have to muster up the courage to ask a stranger at the breakfast counter to pass me the salt. I have never once approached a stranger and asked them for money. Never once. It would be too uncomfortable. And, you know, the whole business of us asking for money on this show notwithstanding, this is standard practice. If you have a podcast that you want to keep going, then you need support to keep it going. Right. And that's just that. These people, on the other hand, let me tell you something about televangelists. Shame is not an emotion that they seem to feel. And they seem hopelessly devoid of conscience to boot. Let's look at what some of them have managed to accomplish by doing little more than putting on a good show and making aggressive calls to action to give with or without the promise of any tangible reward. So let's talk about Kenneth Copeland for a minute. This motherfucker has his own fucking airport. I mean, he needs one. He has two private jets. One of them is a $20 million Citation 10. And he also has a Gulfstream 5 that he refuses to reveal what he paid for. Of course, the uh, the Gulfstream is, in fact, a hand-me-down. It was owned previously by Tyler Perry. Apparently, Steamboat Springs, Colorado is a vast mission field because lots of ministry work has to be done there. Kenneth Copeland has flown there from Fort Worth. Again, we're talking about Texas. A documented 143 times since the year 2000. So what's there? What's really in Steamboat Springs? Well, what's there is Kenneth Copeland's favorite ski resort. I wonder just how much ministry work is being done while he's there. I wonder precisely what kind of missions work he's doing there, who he's reaching with the gospel when he flies there. Jesus Christ, 143 times, 143 trips to this resort. Right. And I'm guessing it's not cheap. Mm Mm-hmm. At one point, he was asked why he needed these planes. And I'm going to get into this a little bit more in a couple of minutes, too. But one of the reasons that he gave, and he gives a couple of them. He's got a standard response that kind of parrots itself in a couple of these 
idiots ministries, okay? But one thing that he said at some point about not using commercial jets right. to get from place to place because they would cost a lot less. It would be a much better use of, quote unquote, God's money, wouldn't it? But he won't because he describes planes as tubes full of demons. Hmm. Who are the demons? Good question. Well, I would assume that it's the other passengers really? on that plane. And he looks at himself as being so high above anyone else that would be on that plane that he doesn't feel like he can even occupy space with them. And whether he wants to admit saying it or not, he absolutely said it. And he has, he has denied saying that. Or yeah. at least he said, no, that's not what I meant. But bullshit. That's precisely what he meant. Now, many of the comments that I'm going to make going forward are from various pages on a site called inplainsight.org. And since I already mentioned him, let's keep talking about Kenneth Copeland for just a few. Uh, quick caveat here. This is, in fact, a theist source. But again, even other evangelicals can't get behind this mongrelization of their faith. Mm. They can't get behind Kenneth Copeland or any of his cohorts. And this is, and, and I found this, uh, this particular article to be very informative and very honest. He interjects, just to be clear, the author does interject some very theistic views in, right. in the course of going through all of this. But what he has to say about these people and his opinions of them, I believe, are very spot on. So according to beliefnet.com, Kenneth Copeland is the wealthiest pastor in America. His net worth at the time of the writing of this article around 2018 was $760 million. So that was a couple of years ago now. That number might actually be higher or at least holding steady. Right. I mean, a lot of these quote-unquote ministries are on the decline, but Kenneth Copeland is the master of this. He really is the grandfather of successful modern televangelism. And again, it's a backhanded compliment at best, but it's true. His ministry operates out of a 1,500-acre campus near Fort Worth, Texas. This is the site of the private airstrip and hangar that I mentioned before. Now, in 2007, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, I found that very interesting, opened an investigation targeting six megachurch-slash-televangelist ministries, but very little came of it because, well, tax laws and other laws governing finance don't pinpoint any of these people's M.O. as being in any way, shape, or form illegal. It sucks, but I feel like I could have told him that and saved the American public the expense of the investigation. I also have my suspicions about why a Republican would launch this kind of investigation, and it comes back to the concept of money talks and bullshit walks. How much more money would be channeled into the federal government if the federal government could figure out how to get their hands on it? Mm -hmm. Not all yeah. Republicans are in bed with evangelicals. And even if they were, let's say it again, these people are not evangelicals. They're grifters and quote unquote business people who yeah. have found their niche. So that could be the answer right there. A Republican senator might want them in his crosshairs because he disagrees with them every bit as much as the person sitting next to him in church on Sunday. So there is that. But these were the ministers at the foundation of the investigation. Let's call them the Grassley Six. And 
with all due respect, this guy had loads more to choose from. Yeah. But he zeroed in on these people. Kenneth and Gloria Copeland were one investigation. Then there was Creflo and Taffy Dollar, Randy and Paula White, Bishop Eddie Long, Joyce Meyer, and Benny Hinn, who was no stranger to financial probes by then. In the end, none of them were charged with anything. The Senate Finance Committee put it this way, quote, the lack of governmental, independent, or denominational oversight is troubling when considering that churches can reach the size of large taxable corporations, control numerous taxable and non-taxable subsidiaries, and bestow Wall Street-sized benefits on their ministers. And like I said so many episodes back, if you think this is wrong, tell your state representatives to start taking steps to change it and vote for candidates who are more likely to at least try. At the moment, those are our options. And it doesn't look like this particular issue is going anywhere. Right. We have what is called a representative government. More of us need to make sure that we're being represented. Yeah. And more of us need to make sure that the people that we elect understand that they represent us and get them to do something about this. Because there's no constitutional reason why these people should be able to get away with this. And that message needs to be sent. And it needs to be sent loud. Yeah. And it needs to be sent clear. But I'll have a little bit more to say about that in a few minutes too, so I'm going to leave it right there. Of the six ministries probed, only two chose to cooperate with the investigation. That was Joyce Meyer's ministry and Benny Hinn's. Benny Hinn already had his entire answer to everything because he'd been through this before. He knew precisely how to answer the questions. He knew precisely how to deflect. He knew exactly how to, quote unquote, cooperate. So, of course, none of them suffered any real consequences. Now, the others, the other four, showed considerable resistance, which only forced investigators to do their own digging. The information was out there. It just wasn't handed to them. We won't go into every story here tonight, but I do want to cast a light on two of them and another protege who learned his grift from the best of them. I'm talking specifically about Copeland, Creflo Dollar, and Jesse Duplantis. Let's start with him, since he's the odd man out on the list. Like a lot of televangelists, Jesse Duplantis' lifestyle is off the charts. He brags about having chandeliers that cost more than most people's homes. And he's one of more than a handful who have very, very expensive private jets. The one Duplantis owns cost him $54 million. You don't just drop that kind of coin on a plane if you don't have plenty sitting there to live off of. Really? You know? And that's the truly scary part about this. The sheer amounts of money that are involved and the fact that we will probably never know what those real numbers are. And in response to any detractors that might have had the nerve to say, you know, maybe you don't quite need this. His answer was very simple. My congregation is the world. I need the plane. That was his entire response to it. And also, of course, the extra added bonus of God said, I'm going to have this plane. So, yeah, I mean, you can say God said anything. And, (laughs) you know, your, your hapless followers are going to believe it and they're going to open their wallets. That's the whole point. So he needs the plane. Why? Um, To fly home, evidently, because that's mostly what he does. And also, there were 16 trips to his favorite mission field, Hawaii. Hmm. All of this is according to a piece that aired on Inside Edition a few years ago. And let me tell you, 
they all love to use the same basic line when yeah. it comes to why they need something like this. Duplantis used it. Creflo Dollar has used it. And even Kenneth Copeland has used the same basic excuse for why they need the planes. Yeah. I'm going to get into the parallel in just a couple of minutes. But for right now, let's just talk about real dollars. Let's talk about a flight from Fort Worth, Texas to New Orleans. That is about an hour long. The total cost for that one, for Jesse Duplantis, was about $14,000. Is about $14,000. A commercial one-way flight on the same day, probably around two hundred, dollars maybe a little bit less. Which of these things seems like a better use of God's money to you? $14,000 for your own personal comfort or an hour with the demons? Yeah. Just... Jeez. I mean, I'm sorry. Mm. For me, the answer would be clear. But then again, I was taught to think a lot better about this kind of stuff. I think I mentioned on the show at least once before how I had suggested taking out a billboard that was close to our church. And our pastor didn't want to do it because it would have been 2500 bucks for the month. And he said, quote, I just think that there are better ways that we can spend God's money. Yeah. Well, guess what? There are better ways to spend God's money than flying to Hawaii for 14 grand on your private jet. Yeah. There are much, much better ways of spending this money that you claim these people are giving in faith and are by proxy giving to their God. Okay. There are much, much better things you could be doing with it, but you're not, and you're not going to, obviously. So when asked by a reporter, this one, I mean, I'm, I'm watching the video of this and it's, it's rage inducing Jeez. because you got to wonder how it would have been different if it was a male reporter. Mm. But when asked by a reporter from Inside Edition why he needs a $54 million airplane, two of Duplantis's thugs physically dragged her away from his table at a book signing event. These people have no shame, and they seriously think that it's okay to manhandle women like that. I would have loved to see those guys try and do the same thing to a man. Oh, yeah. Or if she had had any kind of security detail along with her. If it wasn't just her with a microphone, I would love to see how that would have panned out. But because she was just a little woman, it was okay for them to put their hands on her and drag her away. This is what these people think of everyone. If anyone had walked up to that table and said something that he didn't like, they would have gotten the same treatment. And it's a clear message to me what they think about people in general. The fact that they would do something like that to a news reporter on camera. This is what they show the public. This is what they don't care if the public sees, okay? This is how they behave when they know people are looking. Imagine what's going on in those heads of theirs. Imagine just the sheer levels of hate and contempt that they have for people that they would force this grift on them and tell them that they love them as they take their mortgage payments. And we will get around to talking about some of the other subjects of that investigation in a few, but you know, there's a tie in between Duplantis and Kenneth Copeland. Let me tell you fucking Kenneth Copeland, man in 2016, this is a quote from the same article. Um, in 2016, Copeland and fellow televangelist Jesse Duplantis defended their use of private planes on Copeland's TV show Believer's Voice of Victory, saying that flying on commercial airlines was getting in, quote, a long tube with a bunch of demons. And in January of 2018, the Kansas City Star reported that Kenneth Copeland Ministries paid cash for a Gulfstream 5 private jet 
that they bought from actor and filmmaker Tyler Perry. This private jet that seats 14 is reputed to be one of the highest performance jets in the world, owned by celebrities including Jim Carrey and John Travolta. Billionaire Mark Cuban is said to have bought one in 1999, so it's not the same plane changing hands between all these celebrities. It's just <laughs> that it's a popular plane yeah. among people who make Jim Carrey, John Travolta, and Mark Cuban money. So keep that in mind. Remember, we have no fucking way of knowing how much money is going through these organizations, but it is a lot. Yes. If they can afford to purchase these things, be able to keep the staff to maintain them, be able to keep the crew to fly them, there's a lot of money coming into these organizations. And the guys that are buying these planes are all learning their craft from one source, and that is Kenneth Copeland. And boy, oh boy, is he a good fucking teacher when it comes to that. Just another quick snippet from the article. According to one church member, this is the plane the Lord, quote, set aside for the ministry. Although the price was not disclosed, at the time of writing, no Gulfstream 5 is priced at close to $5.9 million on AV Buyer, which I assume is a figure that, uh, that came out in one of these investigations. Kenneth Copeland did get the plane for a good deal, and he actually did, uh, he did say that. So who knows whether or not he got it at like 90% off. Maybe Tyler Perry really just needed to unload it. Who knows? But that's not even close to the value of one of these planes. So who the hell knows how he got it or if he even got it at that price. He even said that he got it at such a low price that he, quote, couldn't help but buy it. Um, you know what? I think a majority of your donors could have held themselves back. And I think some of them sent you their mortgage payments so that you would have the luxury of making such a tough decision. Another one who made news by making the tough decision to panhandle to his congregation to buy him a plane was a lovely specimen of humanity called Creflo Dollar. I did some digging, and this is his birth name. The grifter's life was calling him from birth. Um, he considers Kenneth Copeland one of his key mentors and friends, so basically he learned this shit from the best. He learned how to get deep into people's pockets, even to the point of convincing people to, you guessed it, buy him an airplane. In 2015, more than once, more than once. In 2015, though, he successfully convinced his followers to donate funds in excess of $65 million to purchase a Gulfstream G650 twin-engine jet. And he also framed it as a necessity. Quote, a long-range, high-speed intercontinental jet aircraft is a tool that is necessary in order to fulfill the mission of this ministry. Compare that with Copeland's claim that I couldn't do 65% of what I do without my planes and Jesse Duplantis' statement that my congregation is the world. So a way to travel the world is necessary, even if your world is small enough to include just Texas and Hawaii. Mm. Such similar explanations, and yet no one wants to come up with a more compelling argument for flying commercial than that commercial planes are tubes full of demons. No, they're just full of regular people you don't want to show your faces in front of for a number of reasons. The ones that I just mentioned, but also I think it's that they just might get their asses handed to them, verbally or otherwise. You're someone's captive audience for two, three, five hours or more, and they just utterly despise you, you know, 
is it going to be a comfortable experience whether they say word one to you or not? Of course it isn't. Being around people that they know are smarter than them and are wise to their game, that's not a comfortable thing at all. But a lot of people know who these guys are. And the televangelists who need these $65 million planes know that it's a far better plan to only put themselves in front of people who agree with and admire them. And if that's not you, be prepared to be physically carried out of their presence. Mm. I mean, they don't mind the public seeing that, evidently. These three guys, Kenneth Copeland, Jesse DePlantis, and Creflo Dollar, all use the same grift to acquire airplanes via private donations. And there's a reason for that. Copeland is friends with both of them. And there is literally no one better at this particular grift in the United States than him. I hate even giving this piece of shit a backhanded compliment, but there you have it. Again, he's the smartest and the most savvy when it comes to his target market, and he has proven his ability to duplicate his own successes in others more than once. I think it's a shame that this is how he chooses to do it because, I mean, imagine a world, just for a minute here, a world with a moral philanthropic Kenneth Copeland, a version of himself that offered legit marketing and financial advice that got these kinds of results and helped change people's lives for the better instead of coming up with compelling ways to get people to hand over their mortgage payments and grocery money with no guarantee or even hope of return on investment. But let's go back to Creflo Dollar just for a minute. And it's another little bit of a quote from the same article. The ministry's income is unavailable. There's a fucking surprise. That wasn't Mm. in the article. But newspaper accounts say the ministry paid $18 million in cash for his new 8,000-seat World Changers Church International on the southern edge of Atlanta. That's fairly small for a guy who could rake in 65 mil. He flies to speaking engagements across the nation in Europe in a $5 million private jet. This was a while ago. This was his first plane. And drives a black Rolls Royce. Yeah, because you need that too. A Rolls Royce. What's the excuse for the Rolls Royce? Why do you need that? It's going to drive on the same roads as my Civic does. Why do you need it? Yeah. Dollar's ministry became a focus of a court case involving boxer Evander Holyfield in 1999. The lawyer for Holyfield's ex-wife estimated that the fighter gave Dollar's ministry $7 million dollars. Dollar refused to testify in the case. Additionally, in 2005, the couple bought a home in Manhattan for $2.5 million that they turned around and sold six years later for $3.75 million. Mm. And it's also worth noting that Dollar was the least cooperative of the six ministers targeted in the investigation. This forced the committee to, quote, piece together a puzzle about his finances through public documents, third parties, and news reports. The probe revealed that in 2006, World Changers Ministries, Creflo's ministry, had received an estimated $69 million in contributions at its Atlanta church alone. That's just tithes and offerings. Hmm. They found that the dollars also owned two multi-million dollar homes in Georgia and that his ministry entities had owned four aircraft that were utilized primarily for personal use. Not the work of the ministry, not spreading the gospel, not being able to have a global congregation for personal use. Now, I do want to give dishonorable mention to a few others. We'll leave Joyce Meyer and Paula White alone for this round, not because they're women, but just because they're the least successful and least worrisome. 
They don't have the same magnetism and largely come across as garden variety, batshit, and unworthy of the attention that they get anyway. They make some money, but they certainly don't make Kenneth Copeland money, not by a long shot. Um, That, and we've got Paula White's Angels from Africa. That, and we've given Paula White's Angels from Africa enough airtime already, I think. Honorable mention to her South American angel peeps, too. But let's talk about Benny Hinn for just a sec. Benny Hinn has gone so many rounds with investigators. I'll leave it to Google to provide the fine details. But he's one of the more diabolical in this group. And remember how I referenced the Christian mafia a few minutes ago? Well, is it a little bit of an exaggeration? I don't know when I hear shit like this. Here's just a sample of some of Hinn's remarks over the years. Quote, sometimes I wish God would give me a Holy Ghost machine gun. I'd blow your head off. And my personal favorite, if you attack me, your children will pay for it. Both of which sound like something that an evangelical Tony Soprano would say when he's pissed off. Very loving, very Christ-like, very pastoral, Tufik Benedictus Hinn. That's his real name. Wow. Tufik. Sounds a lot like two-faced, if you ask me. Mm. Now, that takes care of the people that were part of this investigation. Again, again, I'm not going to go into every detail of all of their stories and what was found out because it's a very anticlimactic ending to this. Basically, none of these people got into any trouble whatsoever because of the way our stupid laws are written. So even when it started, I can't even begin to imagine why the government funded this whole probe because they had to know how it was going to end. The instant you insert religion into the equation with any of this... It eradicates so much responsibility that how on earth do you hold these people responsible when the laws of the land don't? How do you hold them responsible? It's very, very difficult. And as we found out, 0 for 6, it's nigh unto impossible with these people. But I want to round this discussion out by talking about one more shyster preacher and one of the worst organizations I've ever had personal dealings with. First, let's talk a bit about another glowing example of the putrescence of televangelism, and I'm talking about a dude named Robert Tilton. Let's be clear, this guy is not, nor has he ever been a Christian. There is well-documented evidence, including video evidence, of him lampooning faith healers. This guy is nothing more than a charlatan with a good business plan. And that, I mean, that describes all of them. But man, this guy's good at his craft too. And he has had decades and decades of success by just repeating the same shell games and parlor tricks over and over and over again. And the same catchphrases over and over and over again. But let me tell you, he's good at what he does because I can remember listening to him pretty intently when I was younger. Now, I had been taught not to take him seriously, Mm. but... He was also very easy to listen to. Yeah. And you could get immersed in what he was saying. You could really, really find yourself immersed in his words. John Oliver did a wonderful expose of Tilton on his show last week tonight that is readily available on YouTube. So again, not going to spend a lot of time on this guy. But John Oliver does an impeccable job of breaking down what Tilton does. And it goes way beyond the common grift. He has learned how to use tangibles to bolster people's confidence in him. He sends tons of useless trinkets, fake religious artifacts, talismans, even small amounts of money. That's right. That's right. He sends small amounts of money, things like nickels and sometimes dollar bills, 
that he expects to get back with tons of interest. And he does this to keep people in the game. And it works. And in that episode, John Oliver goes through a number of correspondences yeah. that he has with this guy. It's really, really interesting to watch. I'm just not going to take the time, nor do I want to steal his thunder. He did an amazing job with this. So I'm just going to refer you to that. Hop on YouTube. John Oliver, televangelist. It's going to be the first thing that pops up. But at the end of the day, the thing about Robert Tilton is that he is, in fact, a complete fake. And I could do a fucking series on him and all the shit that he's pulled over the years if I had the notion to give him that much of a spotlight. But I don't, at least not for now. So let's move on. Lastly, lastly, I want to talk about an organization called TBN and its founders, Paul and Jan Crouch. While it's not in my nature to revel in anyone's death, I'm nonetheless pleased to report that both of these yahoos have taken leave of our universe, at least in a conscious, active, and potentially influential way. Paul died in 2013, and Jan died about three years later in 2016. I bring them up because this organization was and is a TV network dedicated to word faith grifters and has been providing them a platform literally for decades. They started out in 1973, and by the mid-1980s, they were saturating an international market with word-faith bullshit. And here's a little something from their Wikipedia entry. TBN owns and operates six broadcast networks, each reaching separate demographics. In addition to the main TBN network, TBN owns Hillsong Channel, seriously, wow. Smile and Lance, I guess that's how you pronounce it, TBN Salsa, just add a little racism to your uh, to your Spanish channel there. And positive, positive, or however the fuck you want to pronounce it. I don't even care. It also owns several other religious networks outside the United States, including international versions of its five U.S. networks. Matt Crouch, a complete dick, and I'll get into that in a minute, is currently TBN's president and head of operations. Now, they did downsize a little bit in 2017 when they sold their largest broadcasting facility. And then they actually, it was their flagship that they sold Trinity Christian City in Costa Mesa, California. But they are still out there and they are still wreaking havoc in a way that I'm sure is keeping Paul Crouch's rotting dead corpse chuckling with delight from six feet under. Unless he was cremated. I don't know and I don't care. It's a caustic visual and I like it. But I want to tell you, I'm racking my brain here trying to figure out if i've told this story during this show before i think so but i'm gonna give the reader's digest version you know and you you know what my reader's digest versions turn into but i'm gonna try and keep this brief and just give you an idea of what it's like on the inside of a tvn studio or at least what it was like the night that i was there so Back in the late-ish 80s, this had to be 88 or 89 because I'm pretty sure you had to be 16 to take these jobs, okay? We had our own TBN affiliate literally just a couple miles from home. And the pastor of our church used to do local shows because TBN stations have local content also. So I forget who was coming in. I want to say that it was Benny Hinn, but I don't remember it was one of the big wigs that was coming in for oh you know who it was nikki cruz oh that's who it was nikki cruz was in town and of course they expected him to be a big draw for the studio audience so they had extra staff on 
for a couple of nights. So they offered these jobs to the kids in our youth group because, you know, our senior pastor was pretty much in bed with these people. So they came to us and they asked if our church had anyone who wanted to make a little bit of money for two or three nights or whatever it was. And we were encouraged to donate our time. They wanted us to do it for free. I initially agreed to do it for free, but after what happened the second night that I was there, I went ahead and filled out that W-4 and said, fucking pay me. And here's what happened. I was asked to stand outside and hold people at the door because they didn't want people coming into the studio until, you know, a certain time before they had things they needed to do to prep and all of that. And we were just asked to hold people outside. It was a nice night. It wasn't like the dead of winter or anything like that. It wasn't raining. People were comfortable. Okay. So they were waiting outside and I'm standing there at the door and who comes up behind me, but Paul fucking crouch. Okay. And he was just, he was livid and he puts on his, his good grifter voice and like, and says, who told you people you had to stand out here like this? Come on in. You're welcome here. Blah, 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 blah. Just laying it on as thick as possible. And then, and then he had the audacity to literally physically pull me aside and ask me who I thought I was holding those people out there. I said, I was told to hold them by your stage director. Maybe you should take your hands off me and go talk to him. And there were a few other words that were exchanged, but that was all, you know, I, I mean, my little 16 year old self and this guy with his hand firmly around my arm, I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified at that moment in time. And when we got inside, and the show started because no, if it had been today, I would have been in my car driving away. Yeah. But at that point, it's like the show must go on. So I was in the studio and during the taping. Um, now, let's keep in mind, just mention Matt Crouch. OK, Matt Crouch was the producer for the show that they were doing with Nikki Cruz. And at one point, there was a baby in the audience in the bleachers that started crying. I kid you not. You could hear this guy's voice over the headphones on the stagehands six and ten feet away. I have no idea how it didn't go out over the air, but he's literally screaming in these people's ears, get it out, get it the fuck out right now. And I'm like, how is that not going over the air? How are people not hearing this and not being appalled? Because I'm ten feet away and I can hear it. And there were people that were way closer. So, yeah. yeah, you better believe he was that angry and that he was swearing at the people that worked for him. Yeah. So it was a real the apple doesn't fall far from the tree kind of scenario for me because I had just dealt with his father and now I'm seeing how he treats people. And it just goes right back to the whole tube full of demons thing. As far as I'm concerned, it goes right back to that because this is how they looked at someone else's kid. They demand it. It was demanded by the stagehand, and he was kind of terrified himself. It was demanded by that stagehand that this woman hand over her child so that the child could be taken out of the studio because the child was causing a disturbance. And then the mother was escorted out to attend to the kid. But it was more of a priority to get the kid out than it was to just let the mother carry her own baby out. They demanded that she hand over the baby. And this idiot did. I personally would have told him to go fuck himself. Yeah. 
even at that point in my life, I would have told that guy to go fuck himself. <laughs> yeah. I'm not taking my kit. But I guess she was a little scared too because he was very aggressive. She handed over the baby. They walked out. And I mean, I remember nothing after that. I remember literally nothing of that experience after that except going to my youth pastor and saying, no, after that, they're paying me. It is the least that they can do. And, you know, it wasn't a lot of money, but at least I had something to show for what I went through. And this is the type of person that this guy was. So Paul Crouch, consider that my fuck eulogy to you. Mm -hmm. So that is my TBN story. That is as close to any of these people that I ever got, aside from the occasional crusade that came through Faith Assembly or something yeah. like that. I met a couple of these guys. I met Dave Reaver once. Oh, I yeah. met Dwight Thompson and a couple of the others that were big at the time. Eastman Curtis was another one. He was more on the youth end of things, but he had his own show on TBN and he came around a couple of times. He was actually the speaker at the retreat where I spoke in tongues the first time. That was him. So I'd had exposure to some of these guys. But that night and the impact that it had on me, oh my God, I just, and to this day, I think about that. And part of me, I mean, my heart starts to race a little bit and the anger and the fear come back a little. Yeah. And just remembering just the feeling of that guy's hand on my arm. And, you know, this is the way that one guy, and with all due respect, one of the smaller players in terms of televangelism, he had a huge network, but, you know, he, I don't think that he was making Kenneth Copeland money, not even with TBN, no. not even with that. I don't think that he was making that kind of money. This was just one guy in that world dealing with one 16-year-old kid. What the fuck else do you think was going on at that time? And what do you think is going on now? And how are people being abused now? How are these people's staffs being abused every single day just so that they can put one more dollar in these assholes' pockets. Yeah. It's something to think about. And I personally don't like thinking about it that much because of the memories that it turns up. We talked about religious trauma. Well, you know what? I'm sitting here and shaking thinking about this. I was 16. I'm going to be 50 in a couple of months. Okay. Yeah. And I'm shaking thinking about this and how it made me feel and how angry it made me and how impossible it was for me to explore that anger then. And then I had the audacity to wonder why I had anger management issues going into my adulthood. It was because of things like this and other traumatic events that happened as part of that religion. One of the worst things that has ever happened to me, period. And I've gone through some shit. I've been through some shit. This one ranks high. I'm not going to call it number one, but it certainly is one of the first yeah. things that I think of when I think of bad stuff that's happened to me. Because not only was it a terrifying experience, but it was one of the first examples I got of what these people were really like. Yeah. And it was very disheartening because I was working toward becoming one of them. And it reached a point where I just didn't want that to be me. And I didn't know what the fuck to do about it. But that's a conversation for another time. And just a last little bit about TBN here. TBN was also really good at getting and maintaining donors. And, you know, I talked about Robert Tilton yeah. and his methods. And, you know, you send me something, I send you something, that kind of thing. Well, TBN was kind of masterful at this, too. 
they actually offered a tangible return on your donation, usually in the form of some kind of cheap trinket that they would send you in exchange for your quote unquote love gift in, in any amount. So, I mean, if you sent them a dollar, they'd send you their shit. At least that was what they claimed. You know, they said any amount, but I wasn't there in anyone else's mailboxes. I know what my grandmother was sending them and I know that she got their stuff all the time. Um, she got every useless piece of shit they had to offer from the mid to late 80s forward. And some of it was embarrassingly gaudy. And another thing that really pisses me off about that is that she continued to support them after that happened to me. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, really, I have come to grips with a lot of the things that even my immediate family did back then. And my grandmother, you know, I believe wholeheartedly that she loved everyone in her life with all of her heart, mind, and strength, but she also went out of her way to fuck us up in yeah. many, 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 many ways. And I don't think that it was intentioned, but she never learned from the way that I responded and reacted to things either, that this is just not the way that you should be dealing with any of this. And the simple fact that she kept sending them money after that happened to me was kind of rage-inducing. Yeah. But you see... At the same time, I also understand where it comes from because you know she was like any of the plethora of other people that are out there sending Creflo dollar money for an airplane. The grift worked. It worked on her. And that was the bottom line. She was, she was so caught up in what these people were doing that she didn't notice what it had done to me. And I'm sorry, that's all part of the plan. I don't completely blame her for that. Yeah. So to close things out, I just want to put a cap on a few of the comments that we've made. First, keep in mind, televangelists fail to identify well with evangelicalism. Most evangelicals will steer clear of many of them, but plenty of the smaller players still manage to book speaking engagements and crusades at local churches. And yes, tent meetings and local church crusades are still a thing for word faithers who can't afford to build mega churches. Yeah. These people are marketers who have learned precisely how to target the average pew sitter, like my grandmother. They offer things that the local pastor won't in terms of promises of prosperity, healing, etc., based solely on things like faith giving. If you give us this amount of money, then God will do this for you. If you're struggling to pay your rent, send us your rent payment and watch as God multiplies it. It's just as nefarious as that. And I think that a lot of the people that are listening to this have heard these very claims before from some of these shysters. And, you know, don't, yeah, I was going to say don't get me started, but I started over an hour ago. <laughs> um, now, you do get some of that shit from the local pulpit on an average Sunday, but it isn't inflated to the embarrassing caricature of evangelical doctrine that you see coming from televangelists and their messaging. And maybe one of these days I'll do an entire episode on doctrine that comes out of word faith because yeah. there's some weird ass shit creflo <laughs> dollar has some very very odd ideas about who jesus is certainly not anything biblical yeah there's a lot of really odd weird strange and out there doctrine that yeah. comes out of this movement too that might be fun to explore at some point next these people care nothing for the people that they fleece. Let's make sure we understand that. You get on a plane with Kenneth Copeland, you're a demon. You're inferior to him. That's why he doesn't want to fly with you. That, and what if you don't like him? 
they unabashedly beg for money and guilt people who are already not getting by to plunge themselves deeper into debt so that they can take private planes to the same ski lodge 143 fucking times. Mm. We will never know. We will never know how much some of these people are worth because the government has concluded on more than one occasion that it's none of our or their business based on current tax laws. Laws that change every single year, but somehow allow the parts of tax law that allow these dirtbags to do what they do to remain firmly in place and without contest. If our government is still one of the people, by the people, and for the people, then it's the people who need to change that. And I'm actually sitting here thinking about the fact that I didn't bring up Joel Osteen once. Well, his messaging... And the best way I can put this is that it's a little bit more secular than a lot yeah. of them. At least as secular as evangelical pseudo-doctrine can be. His message is broader and more inclusive than most. He doesn't present the rhetoric the same way as most. His approach to televangelism is unique. It's also more dangerous than the average because of how it hijacks things like psychology and self-help to get even deeper into people's pockets. Osteen targets a slightly higher earning, more intelligent segment than most, and I think what he does deserves more than deserves more of a light shined on it. So, tune in next week. We're going to talk about Joel and why he does the things that he does. Once you know how the illusion works, you can't be hoodwinked. So come back and hear more on him next week. So with that to look forward to, just one final thought. Actually, I'm going to make it a two-parter. First, like I say about anything else, if you ever gave to these people, don't feel guilty. These people, can, they can be very, very charming. They speak with a lot of authority and they have what they have because they're good at what they do. You know better now and they've lost whatever you were sending them. And every penny that stays out of those organizations is one that takes these people one step further away from that new jet. And that's just all around good news. Secondly, if you have ever been hypnotized by the siren song of a televangelist or televangelists, you're also in good company. These people weaponize psychology to get deeper into your pockets, and their methods work for numerous reasons. This is why we need to change the structure of the law as it pertains to church organizations, so that if separation is what they want, they can have it, but they cannot keep luring the general public into their grift. There never was, nor is there now, any constitutional reason not to tax churches. Our government is responsible for these people's successes and their ability to hide behind a banner of faith. We all need to be active in politics and start getting loud about our desire to hold televangelists accountable for the damage that they do. It starts in the voting booth and extends to more proactive steps like staying in contact with elected officials about laws that allow the grift to continue. Lastly, we must continue to talk about these people and the damage they do. Attract attention to it. We need to do what we can to let people know who they're really supporting and why. It may not seem like much, but the right information in the right hands can and will lead a few people to decide not to send Kenneth Copeland their mortgage payment, and that decision could be their first step toward getting and staying unbound. 
enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.